This is Transistor.fm. Code Fun Podcast Network. Hey, Nate. Hey, Andrew. How you doing? I'm doing good. Welcome to another episode of the Ruby Blend. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Today we have a very special guest that Nate is going to introduce. Yeah, today we're pleased to uh, welcome Chris Oliver to the podcast. Chris is the creator of GoRails and also the Hatchbox service, which we'll learn a little bit about today. He discovered Ruby through Python, so we'll get a little bit of that background, but it sounds pretty interesting. At university, he was working with an astrophysicist using Rails to sync data between various applications and CMS systems. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. We're glad to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It feels like we're recording another episode as usual on, on the other show. <laughs> yeah, except we get to see ourselves or each I other. Know. Them, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's even more fun. <laughs> yeah, it's probably worth noting that Chris, Nate, and I also podcast along with Jason Charns on Remote Ruby. So if you have never checked out Remote Ruby, definitely do that. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good show. Yeah, we're just, you know, making, making too many podcasts, huh? <laughs> There's never enough. Yeah, that's true. That is true. So Chris, could you take us through your origin story, at least with Ruby and, and how you discovered Ruby and how you began developing with it? Yeah. You know, I was trying to teach myself to code like in grade school and high school and everything. And I ended up getting into Ruby because I was working in Python. Python was like, I was using Ubuntu Linux on my laptop and and it, it made sense just because it's pre-installed. I can run it on Windows and I was looking for something cross-platform, but Ruby didn't seem to be quite as available back then. And this was probably 2010 or earlier. Actually, yeah, probably more like 2007, 2008. So Python seemed to be more popular then, but Rails was like, you know, definitely popular in building web apps. And I was trying to build desktop apps at the time because I had dial-up and everything. So it ended up being that as I'm building these desktop apps, I hate it. And it's a real pain to build things on Linux that also work on Windows and Mac and have any sort of GUI. And out of the frustration of that, I was like, I want to learn how to build websites instead. And so I got into Django a bit while I was in college. And one of the professors ended up hiring me and she had a grant to do some Rails apps. So these were moonzoo.org. And I forget if these are even still around or not, but there's, there's a whole collection of these little apps. Like one of them was taking pictures from the Hubble telescope of galaxies. And every galaxy might be a circle. It might be an elliptical shape or whatever, and they might have one or two tails. And they had just so many pictures that they were like, well, we'll upload them and allow users to, to crowdsource the, the like organization of all of these. So those sites were kind of what I was working on. And there was like a, a main content site that they had some writers doing glossaries of all the different terms that you would need to know and other content. And so I ended up working on uh, getting pulled into Rails, doing that, 
where we were like, we had a main Rails app that was kind of an API for those other sites to sync content down, kind of like a core WordPress instance you were pulling content from. And that's when I learned about like active resource, uh, which is something that like died off at some point, but I kind of wish Rails still had. It was kind of a, you know, it was kind of like a, here's, we're going to define how an API should work for Rails apps and, you know, make a standard interface for that, which I think people will continue to this day to struggle with. Should I use JSON API? Should I use JBuilder? You know, whatever. So that was kind of how I ended up just stumbling into Rails. And I did that for the professor. And my senior project was revamping the campus tours scheduling system in a Rails app instead of a uh, form that, that submitted to a Perl script that sent them an email that they copied into a spreadsheet. So that was also, a, you know, another fun Rails project while, while I was in school. So were you using Active Resource to do the data synchronization? I think so. Yeah. Because it was so easy for me to like write a record in one Rails app and then just grab the content as if it was another database record. So yeah. As far as I remember, we were doing that because it was like, I can just do effectively an all or a find by ID or whatever on an external API as if it was just another old database record, which was really fun. Yeah, yeah. For those who don't remember um, Active Resource, it's, it's essentially, you could think of it as like an SDK for like your model layer, where if you had a user model in one app, you could expose it as an active resource. And then from another Ruby app or another Rails app, you could reference that user object and just treat it as if it's a live active record in the, in the app that is actually the consumer. So yeah. it, it was really cool. It was. But that said, I never really got into... I was so new to Rails. I don't think I ever touched like authentication or pagination or any of those things that you know, you might get into with more complex API like that, but that is something that like felt almost stupid easy to do. And when you're trying to build two apps that talk to each other, it was like, just felt natural coming from active record. So I, I kind of miss that. I wish that Rails still had that around. Yeah, it's, uh, it reminds me a little bit of uh, distributed Ruby which I'm not sure if you've played with distributed Ruby, but it's, it's kind of another way to deal with remote objects that's not Rails-specific. It's just baked into the language. Yeah, I've never touched that, but it looks really cool. I think you, were, you mentioned earlier uh, before the show that you had a library you wrote. Yeah, I've got a couple of libraries that I created that I experimented with. One of them is called Coin. It was uh, essentially a replacement for Memcached, but nowhere near as robust as Memcached or Redis or those types of solutions. But you could just interface with a, a Ruby object that looked and felt like a hash, but was a shared cache across multiple processes. And you could even cross machine boundaries if you wanted to. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, that, that's something that like normally when I think about talking between services, I like default to thinking about like, well, we'll talk through Redis or something kind of like you would do with active job or whatever, where you're queuing jobs up and pulling them off there. But yeah, there's not a whole lot of times where I'm like directly talking between processes that I've written anymore. Cause most of the time I'm writing my web app and it talks to another service that someone else created like 
Sidekick or Redis or whatever. So that seems like a really fun thing to to play with a bit. And like this reminded me of like back in college, I was doing a lot of IRC and we were playing with bots and things and, and understanding. I take on a lot of projects just to reinvent the wheel to learn how it works. So like we had all these IRC bots that we liked and we would fiddle with them and add plugins. So one day I decided I would write my own IRC bot and just pure Python with no libraries, just, you know, connect to the socket and see if I can make it work. And I was able to connect, but then of course the like ping and pong to make sure you're still connected happens after like two minutes. And and then I get disconnected and I'm like, Oh crap. Like I got it working just for, for two minutes. Now I got to figure out how to do that. And then eventually I built, you know, my, my little Python IRC bot that did work and would stay connected. But then I, I had an idea for like, why don't I build a Rails app or a Django app or a web app that could spawn IRC bots? That would be fun. Then I could like, you know, have this maintainer of all of those. And that actually was kind of uh, related to DRB where... I had this one Python process that's the web app that needs to go talk to these bots and say, hey, you need to start, you need to stop, you need to you know, disconnect from this channel, connect to this one based upon whatever the action the user took in the, in the UI in, on the website. And that was, I don't even remember how I ended up building that, but I feel like there was something similar in, in Python that I ended up using to talk between processes similar to that. So did you end up using some other abstractions or did you stick with like the raw socket connections and stuff? Eventually, yeah, I used some library around IRC, but my goal was just to teach myself how to use a raw socket and how the IRC protocol worked. So being able to just see every message sent in directly was eye-opening to me because most of the time I just use some IRC client and have no idea you would see some in the logs, some things about what's going on, but it's the same thing as if you use your web browser, you don't see the HTTP requests. Or if you do, they're already pre-parsed and look pretty for you rather than like the raw text that comes over. So for me, it was helpful to see that at the time, you know, to, to wrap my head around what's actually happening behind the scenes. Yeah, that's a rare that's a rare trait, I think, for a lot of people, especially uh, as you're early into it, right? But so helpful to drop down to the low level and kind of understand those low-level primitives because then you can kind of condense it all down and realize, like I've worked with some developers when I was younger that really helped me kind of understand that as well, dropping down to the primitives and doing some of those types of things yourself. It, it demystifies a lot of it. And then you also gain a deep appreciation for the abstractions that you do use later. Exactly. I don't know how I, maybe I just intuited doing that, but that was a thing that I ended up doing quite a lot where I built my first IRC bot, then I built like a little paste bin and I built, I intentionally for one project, I, I built a Rails app with, uh, that was a single to-do list and I intentionally wrote it poorly so that I could use migrations to improve the database uh, structure. So it was like, a Rails app with the scaffold of to-dos, and that was it. So then the next iteration was like, now we want multiple to-do lists. So I have to write a migration that creates those 
lists, but I also have to preserve the existing to-dos and then assign them to some random to-do list that I decided to create. And then I'd go through and be like, well, I want to be able to check them off and make them, you know, completed because I didn't even have that. It was just like, you know, going tiny step by tiny step. And that really helped. Like now you understand, you know, you have data in production. You can't just drop all that data and start with your, your new database schema. You got to keep all that. And in school and when you're teaching yourself, like everything's kind of throw away. But in any job, you can't ever really throw away your production database and start from scratch. So I was trying to do that to teach myself how to maintain, you know, a real application, which ended up being really useful. It like, it actually got me my first job because during the interview, I was able to like talk about that where I was like, well, now I want it to be, you know, you can check the box, but you have to click a submit button to actually send that to make it completed. Now I want to do it with Ajax and so on. And just telling them the process I went through, they were like, wow, okay. I don't know that, that process of like, do things the hard way, like go down as low level as you can to understand it really worked for me to like learn the fundamentals so that that's what made Ruby so daunting at first, but then so why I love it so much now, because in Python, everything is so explicit. You import every method or class, the top of your file, and you're always calling self dot. There's always parentheses and whatever. And then when you come to your Ruby, you're like, well, what if you didn't need all that? What if we could intuit a lot of these things for you? And that was very hard at first because you expect things to be explicit, but it also gave me like a really good appreciation for it when I did figure out, you know, the philosophy that while Python and Ruby look the same, the philosophies of how they work are very different. And Ruby likes to, you know, allow you to run with those assumptions, which is really nice. That kind of begs the question Um, for me. I'm curious what your answer is on whether or not you think Ruby is a good programming language for beginners. Because obviously your path from the, like your beginner path was different than most people, right? It's a great question. You know, it is a, it's a really tough question because like I was just saying, the low level stuff was what helped me understand it the best. So with Ruby having like a good example of in, in Rails, like the params hash is just available to you in a controller and you have no idea where that came from other than you might realize like, oh, my controller inherits from action controller and it's probably in there somewhere. You know, for me, that flexibility was frustrating, very frustrating at first until I read the Metaprogramming Ruby book, which I believe is 10 years old as of today, I think I saw on Twitter, uh, which is pretty great. That book was like, look, you, you have a database with all these tables and these columns, you don't need to write code to say we can set the first name in the email column and we can get the first name in the email columns. Why don't we just take care of that for you so you don't have to worry about it? When I understood that, it made Ruby really, really like amazing to me. But before then, I needed to know exactly what steps led to what. So like, doing some assembly in college was actually one of my favorite classes because I got to see exactly the, you know, 
the, on the lowest level how things worked. And then you can go see from C, we can just write some code that's kind of a higher level than jumps and you know fiddling with registers and, and memory locations. That allowed me to understand how variables work and memory allocation and all those things. And then to go to Python and then to go to Ruby. So for me, I don't know that Ruby would have been a great early programming language because there's maybe it maybe it's too flexible, but at the same time, it could have been a good language for me to learn first because it is so intuitive. It's it's kind of a tough a tough thing. I don't really know. Yeah, I'm kind of curious to get Andrew's take on this because I'm I'm actually just now starting to learn guitar myself. And so if you if you equate learning programming to like learning a musical instrument, like where do you begin, right? When I was a teenager, mm-hmm. I started with a wonderful instructor, really fantastic guitarist. And he was very classical in his approach in terms of, okay, we're going to learn like all the music theory and you're going to learn all of your scales and have to know them perfectly before we actually get into doing like having you play a song. And really what I'm interested in, and I think Rails kind of gives you this out of the, out of the gate, but what I want to learn is like three chords and a strum pattern and so it feels like I'm playing music right out of the gate. Yeah, that's interesting because I had that exact same experience, especially when I was teaching myself in high school and things. Every book that I found was like, here's how to build some command line app. And I'm just like, I want to build something with buttons that I can click on, like a real application. No real application is entirely in the terminal. You know, like something that I used as a kid. So I was always fighting that of like, you got to learn how to do math and use variables and whatever uh, before you can do that. And I was like, yeah, but like, I don't want to do any of these things. I want to go build what I'm trying to build. And that was definitely a struggle because it, it, it didn't, it made it really hard for me to learn it because in same thing in school, like I don't care about data structures until I needed no one to accomplish the thing I'm trying to solve. So if I have a whole course on data structures, I'll skim through it and I'll just like learn enough to get by and pass the exams. I won't really learn them until later on when I'm like, okay, now you're building this thing and you need to have something faster. You're going to have to learn an algorithm or like a cert- binary search tree to, to make this run efficiently. Then I'm like, I could devour that topic. But when it's just kind of something given to me without a, application, it was really tough. And, and that was, I think, where I struggled a lot when I was programming early on, trying to teach myself. And then in, in high school, I got my graphing calculator and could program that. So I started coding all the time on there, just apps to go cheat on my homework. And what I didn't know was I was actually like teaching myself the math on accident to go build the app. I didn't end up needing any of that, but it was like, you know, now I have a practical reason and I can learn at light speed that way. But if it's just kind of like, here's things you should know, I really struggled with that, like learning those things, just the textbook style of memorizing yeah. things. Yeah, I guess the counterpoint, it is kind of, it's a, it is an interesting topic because when I was younger taking those guitar lessons, I got tired of just learning my scales and trying to perfect that. And I fizzled out. I, I never completed. I, I quit. I stopped going to my lessons. And now 
I'm, I'm taking a different approach with it where I, I really am just trying to learn those three chords and, and master a couple of uh, strum patterns. And, and that may be good enough for me. But at the same time, I've worked with developers that, you know, and, and this is not a, a disparagement against uh, boot camps, but there are some developers that come out and they just kind of know how to follow the recipe, right? They, mm-hmm. they, they come out and they, they understand kind of the view layer and have a base understanding of what models are and things like that, but they don't understand at a deep level, like what a Ruby block is. And when you're dealing with an ERB template, you're just invoking a method that has a block argument. Uh, yeah. Things like that, like having that depth of understanding makes what you can do inside of the framework so much more broad. Like it's, you can do m- many more things if you have that level of understanding. Yeah. And I went through one of those moments that I like very clearly remember because that first Rails job I had, one of the things I needed to build was breadcrumbs because our, our content had, you know, pages that were layered and you had each page might have a parent and I needed to actually render that stuff out. And I had spent six months learning rails cause that was what I was doing for my job. And after six months, you know, I got to go build these breadcrumbs. I had not spent hardly any time learning Ruby. So I get to this thing and I'm like, I'm feeling confident that I know how to do rails and everything. And I cannot for the life of me do a nested loop that will be able to render these out and, and print breadcrumbs. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? Like, what is going on? And so there is like a, you have to be aware if you're going to start with something like Rails and learn that. You can be really productive for basic things, but you will have to come back and learn the foundations, which I think is like a great thing for beginners as long as they're aware of that caveat. Like I was so productive in Rails for six months until I hit that. And I was like, I don't actually know. And I was like, honestly, I've been writing these purple string things with a colon at the beginning. And I know the column symbols, but I don't really know the difference between that and a string. I just know that Rails wants me to do them here. And normally I use them for these things like messing with params and whatever. So I really got really frustrated at that point and went back and that's when I learned uh, and read Metaprogramming Ruby, which explained all these things. And from then on, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I was able to like connect it back to all the stuff I knew in, in Python and translate that to Ruby now. But I definitely, it, it's an interesting thing because when you're a beginner, you you want to be able to produce something as soon as possible. But at the same time, if you use a tool like Rails, you're going to hit like a wall where you can't get any further as a beginner until you go back and learn those fundamentals. And but maybe that's the time to do it, right? That That is like when they became relevant to me. So yeah, that probably would be a more ideal approach to learn where you're like, look, here's all the cool things you can do. And you can do basic stuff without knowing a whole lot. But when you want to go do more complicated stuff, then you got to go back and learn your fundamentals. And then they're practical because you need to know them to solve your problem. And then you're like open to learning it. So yeah, you just don't want to hit that like false sense of security or confidence that I had in that six months where I was like, yeah, I'm great at Rails. I know what I'm doing. This is fun. And then I was like, oh my God, I don't think I know anything. I can't even get breadcrumbs to work. 
And have you seen the graph, like the path to mastery? It's like you, uh-huh. you, you peak at this time when you think you, you know it all, and then you hit something like your breadcrumb uh, loop problem, and then you, you drop into this trough of despair before you start to crawl back out. And then you're like, okay, now I actually am building mastery. Exactly. Yeah, I very like emotionally went through that whole thing at that time. It was, it was like, you know, I was just super excited to be like working for something for someone getting paid to do rails in development. And then, you know, it was just a big high. And then I'm like, Oh crap, I can't do anything real. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And that was really disheartening at the time, but you know, having a good resource like metaprogramming Ruby was invaluable and it hit me at the right time at the right place. Cause I, I could have read that six months before and been like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I think you're spot on. Like just, just understand like if you're if you're new to Ruby or new to Rails, that that's you're gonna hit that that trough of despair at some point. Like you're you can be really productive, but just know that at, at some point you're gonna have to learn your scales and and not just play the chords, right? But playing the chords, you're already making music right off the bat and it's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, DHH calls that like in his last keynote, I think it was his last keynote where he was talking about uh, cognitive compression. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, and man, this applies to you know, you might find out you're, you're building Rails apps just fine. Then you got to build an API and you don't realize, you know, all the little details of authentication that you thought you did know because you've been relying on device or you got to now build like a complex SQL query. And you don't actually know SQL as well as you thought you did because, you know, Active Record did way too much of it for you and so on. Yeah, you, you tend to hit those with different things that you're working on. Like, all the time in your career. And it just is, uh, you have to remember, like, it's not a measurement of how bad you suck or whatever. It's just, you haven't had a need to go deeper into that topic yet until now. And now's the time to go learn it. No, it makes me think of uh, tools like uh, YAML store and stuff like that. Because I had a friend one time tell me that if you think of even a database itself, it's, it's little more than than an abstraction on top of the file system, right? So you, you can begin, and I actually had a neighbor and they, they had some young teenage sons that were beginning to program and they were experimenting with PHP and they basically built a CMS, but the way they, and they didn't have a knowledge of what a database was or how to connect to one. And so they were writing everything to the file system. And, you know, it was completely insecure and stuff like that, but I was very encouraging of it because they were, at the, at the early stage, like dealing with those low-level primitives and their understanding of a database when they actually discovered that that was a technology they could leverage, they're like, oh, we know what this thing is and what it's doing. And, and we have a, a deep appreciation for you know, what it's giving us over us just writing files to the file system, even though really at its heart, that's all the database is doing. Yeah. And they, they also understand the like performance trade-offs and other like constraints that you have to worry about when you're building a system like that, that if you just use Postgres, you're never going to think about like, oh, you, you know what? It's got to write to disk and that's not very fast. And those little nuances end up being something that you like learn the hard way, I guess, if you will. And I did that a lot with building things myself when I was in in college and and teaching myself early on to the point where like, I remember inventing some like design patterns that eventually years later, I find out have a name 
that I was just like, oh, you know, I want to build something that I can uh, repeat in this way. And it, it turns out that if I like apply this to the, these apps, it's it's pretty handy. And then later on, I'm like, oh yeah, I guess that did have a name. And I stumbled upon that. And it gave me, because one of my friends had learned, he was very into learning from the books and, and going and reading the design patterns books and then trying to apply them to his code. And he always struggled with that. Whereas for me, it was like, well, I'm not, I don't even need to know the names of these things. I'm just going to see what is reusable and what works and, you know, kind of invent it myself or whatever, because I'm not super worried about writing code that follows a design pattern. And it was interesting to see the different approach there with my code versus his code. And that's a thing where I can understand a lot more of the nuances of it because I have actually written things that ended up in that pattern versus here's a pattern it's really hard for us to explain those nuances and the trade-offs, but we'll try and tell you, but you're probably going to have to go build it first before you can find out if it's going to be a good fit or not. And it, that's definitely a thing that I think is when you're new, you're seeking to, to learn how to write good code and whatever, and you just have to write code and write bad code and not worry about it, but like learn, think about how you can improve it and write it better next time. The, the one app that I built that was open source and is probably still around. So on Ubuntu, you have apt, get, and I had dial-up my, at my parents' house. So I cloned apt, get in Python to download packages for my flash drive to take home to install on my laptop. And that I wrote probably 14 different times because the first time it was like, just didn't even work really. And I'm trying to teach myself classes and, and I go through all this and, and rewrite it and it's a lot better and it works and it's doing fine, but it's pretty messy still. So I rewrite it again and, and I end up like, you know, using classes too heavily one time and it like eats up all the RAM on my computer and it's not even doing a whole lot of work. And I'm like, well, I guess I need to be careful about that. So eventually, you know, I rewrite this a whole bunch of times and you know, it now supports plugins. So there's hooks that it can hook into to enable a feature that'll add itself to the UI and connect up these buttons and whatever. And it was just like the, the 14th iteration or something. I end up with this thing that's pretty cool, but I also taught myself an enormous amount of stuff by, you know, trying to clean up my code every single iteration there. And I wouldn't do it on a production app like that, but it was a great one to do for fun that I could learn a lot of things on. Yeah. The danger with something like design patterns, I mean, as, as wonderful and as useful as they are, you, you pick up a book that, and you, you really start to understand how the pattern works and what it might be applied for. And all of a sudden that's your new hammer and everything looks like a nail and you just try to push it everywhere when it may not necessarily be warranted. Right. Yeah. I think it's just a, easy tendency for that. You're like, here's this new thing I've got. I want to use it all the time. And it's not usually a magic bullet like you might hope it is. I have a funny story about that real quick. I asked Chris one time for help refactoring a my RuboCop interaction plugin thing. And he recorded a video refactoring some of the classes in there. And then 
I watched that and I was like, oh, sweet. Now I have this huge hammer. And then I took that hammer and I went whacking. Like, and the next <laughs> thing you know, the entire code base was completely rewritten using only that pattern. And I was like, you know, I, I took a step back and I was like, you know, I just, I overused that. I did not need to do that everywhere. <laughs> but yeah, you gave me a tool and I used it. Yeah. That's funny. I think that video is available on GoRails if anyone's interested in in watching that. It's like 20 minutes or something, but that was a fun refactoring to do. There's a lot of, you know, just little things that, that if you can learn one of those little tips that you can apply in a few places, then it's useful. But as as you said, you can easily go overboard with some of those things. Like don't repeat yourself is always a good example of something that that people like to overuse or whatever that it's like you know what the duplication allows you to see patterns but if you write your code so there's never any repetition you can never extract things out because you didn't allow for any repetition so you end up with just a mess where things are similar but not not ever the same exactly so i i think some of those things are you want to kind of avoid that if you can but Repeating yourself is a good thing. You can then see your patterns. So, yeah, don't don't abstract too early. So, Chris, you alluded to Go Rails, and for our listeners, I think you've kind of established your uh, experience level. And can you tell us what Go Rails is? How how it was born? Where it came from? And what what you do with Go Rails? Go Rails originally started because on my blog, I would just document things like how I set up a server to deploy Rails to on DigitalOcean. And at some point, I was just thinking about things I could do. And I was like, you know, it'd be nice to separate all the Rails and Ruby content out onto its own separate site from my personal blog and organize it a bit better. So I bought the domain and it ended up being that somebody linked to the guide on Stack Overflow or something. And then I got like 5,000 hits the first month. And I was like, well, that's pretty interesting. So I ended up just continuing to maintain that and write content and it got more traffic. And I learned so much from Ryan Bates and the Rails cast that he recorded. Like I forget how many hundreds he's done, but he did incredible stuff. I learned pretty much everything from him, I feel like. And he had been done with that for a year and a half or something. And I was like, well, maybe I'll take Go Rails and, and turn that into something. So I originally tried to start a course. That didn't go over well. I'm a developer, not a marketer. I didn't know how to sell a course. Nobody knew who I was and whatever. So I wrote a, I made a course over like four or five months and just really struggled with it and then sold like two a month and that was it. And I was like, well, that's not going to pay my rent. So I decided to change it to uh, be similar to Railscast where it's a video every week. And uh, I've been doing that for like six years now. So that's grown tremendously. I mean, I still don't feel like I, I know what I'm doing, but or definitely six years ago, I don't think I was qualified to do it, but trying to teach other people really forces you to learn what you're talking about. And so I feel like this is the greatest way I could have learned Rails and, and gotten experience with it. Because now I can go pick up a different topic, whatever, you know, and I'll go straight to the source code inside Rails to learn it or whatever. And, and 
that is all like confidence and stuff I learned through through recording all these videos, which are over 330 something now. So it's pretty mind blowing. So like when you went to a consistent one episode per week is when, when things kind of turned, took a turn there. Yeah. As soon as I did that, I got a bunch of subscribers like right away that were like, we all miss Railscast. Hopefully this will be a uh, new version of that. And yeah, that, I mean, it pretty much right away, it went up to like, I forget, I had like 80 subscribers or something that first year and, and it's grown since then. But at a point, I think Upcase had the same thing where like education stuff is tough. People will pay for it, watch the video they need, then cancel and stuff. So that people churn a lot. So it makes it for a hard, sustainable business. And Upcase had this same trouble. I think they hit a plateau and, and now Upcase is free for everyone, which is awesome. But yeah, Go Rails has gone through the, the, the plateau as well and it's still probably there. But So Go Rails joined the GitHub student developer pack last year, which is pretty awesome. They have like, I don't know how many thousands of students, but it's just really been great to be able to create content for the community that I, I like graciously have my, my full-time living from, but it's a community that I've really, really loved. And everybody in the community is awesome. And to be able to give back to the community to, to make content and to be you know, paid to do this for full time has been phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, y'all have a really, in my mind, at least y'all, you have a very vibrant community. There's a GoRail Slack room. There's a lot of people in there and it's just a really great atmosphere. Yeah. There's so much talk in there of all kinds of different things from should I use React or Vue or build a single page app or whatever? And lots of, well, tomorrow Tailwind UI comes out. So there's been lots of chat in there lately about, you know, when people are going to be able to buy it and go try out, you know, designing new UIs and everything, which is like funny for me because I was, I always identified as a backend developer for the longest time. But, you know, over time it's like, well, if you're a backend developer these days, you still have to do a lot of JavaScript and probably a fair bit of CSS to make things work. You know, your forms are all submitted with Ajax and, you know, all these things that you can't even have a sign out button in your Rails app anymore without JavaScript translating that to a delete request or whatever. So, you know, it's been a fun thing to see the community evolve too, because not just writing Rails and whatever. Now we're thinking about design with Tailwind and JavaScript and stimulus and stimulus reflex and all these things. And it's cool to see how things have evolved from six years ago when GoRail started. Yeah. I remember being at a Rails comp and sitting at lunch with a buddy and you walked by and I tapped my buddy on the shoulder. I was like, look, it's the GoRails guy. <laughs> it's so, so. funny because from my perspective, I sit at home in my basement and talk to a camera alone with my cat, you know? And then I think it was the first Southeast Ruby that I actually like went to after I'd been doing Go Rails for all these years. And like half the conference seemed to know who I was, which was really strange. And then last year's RailsConf was the, the first one I had went to, I guess. Yeah, it was the second one. But the, the first time I had went was only like a year into Go Rail. So 
people didn't really know who I was then. But then this past year was like really strange to have people like stop me walking in the hallway and like the, and every time I sat down at the lunch table it was like, Hey, I heard your voice in the office last week. And I'm like, that's, that's kind of weird, <laughs> but it, it's cool to see just like how big the community is. And like, I think there's probably 30,000 rails developers registered on go rail. So like community is wow. huge and anybody that thinks rails is dead or whatever is, is talking nonsense. Cause it's clearly a large community, very active and people are doing some really cool things. So I'm curious if you've got like two questions about go rails. One is what's been your most popular episode? And then do you have a personal favorite? Oh man. The most popular episode is a episode on liking posts like you would do on Facebook or Twitter. So like just a simple, like let's record a record of a user and some other object. And that was it. You know, it's kind of funny. I kind of wish it was more, more exciting of a topic, but it, it shows you like those common features that people want to build. Those are the ones that are the most popular. Like if you see it on any website, uh, what thing has comments that don't have some sort of like thing anymore, you know, so that it makes a lot of sense. Then there's like a surprisingly, you know, you have APIs is the second most popular video, but then Stripe uh, subscriptions is actually the third most popular video. So that's pretty interesting. So there are definitely a lot of people in the community still, you know, building businesses, which is where Rails really became popular. You know, it was because as a one-man band, you can go build a business by yourself. And, you know, things have changed a little bit with front-end frameworks, but it seems to me like the community is going back in that direction of how do we make it so that you can be really, really effective as a single developer that doesn't worry too much about, you know, their separate JavaScript front-end that they got to compile and deploy separately. You can't do that very easily with one person. And it seems like things are going back in that direction, which is to my mind, very good. Like, I want to see more of that. That's what brought me here in the first place. And what's your personal favorite uh, GoRails episode? Oh, man, that's a good question. I, I had a lot of fun out of the ones that I've done more recently that I can remember, because at this point, I don't remember like half the episodes I've covered at this point, just because there's been so many. I really had a lot of fun when I was looking into action text and how that worked, because that is a feature of Rails that doesn't get a lot of popularity or a lot of emphasis. But like I was saying with the liking posts, you have comments on any website these days and people expect you to be able to type at the at symbol and someone's name. And when you have a text box that doesn't allow you to do that, it feels kind of weird. So that was like, the thing that I went into to learn how action text works because it's like built for that, but the material and the guides and docs around it just don't really explain that it's anything more than a WYSIWYG editor with tricks. So it, on the surface, it seems like it's like Markdown, but it's really a whole lot more than that. So I had a lot of fun because 
I went into learning that to do a screencast on it when it got announced. But then I was like trying to learn it and found out, well, there are a few rough edges here. So I actually contributed those to Rails. So I fixed a few things and recorded videos on that. And I got to cover the feature. Um, And those kind of things have been the most fun because I get to go contribute to Rails core or whatever and document a feature that everyone probably should be using. I I really enjoy those because they probably, the, the material like liking posts I could do with my eyes closed, it feels like they're not a whole lot of fun for me to record because they're not challenging. But the stuff that is challenging to me ends up being the ones I enjoy the most. Yeah. And I've, I feel like almost everyone in the Rails community probably knows you from Go Rails, but you're actually working on another service called Hatchbox. Do you want to give us a little rundown on what that is? Sure. Yeah. Hatchbox is a, well, we'll go back to the the first guide that was most popular on Go Rails was the deploy Rails guide. So we'd set you up with a server. We would configure it, install Nginx, Ruby, Postgres, all those things, and then set up Capistrano and deploy your code. That whole process is leaves a bit to be desired. It's kind of frustrating. You'll make a typo. You will spend a day or two figuring it out. And then you might even just throw it all away and start from scratch and try it again. And I ended up building a service that will do that for you including a whole lot more. So originally it was kind of a replica of that, but worked on one server. Now Hatchbox is a tool to deploy Rails to any server that you can that you have. So if, if it's at home and accessible to the internet, you can use that. But mostly we see people on AWS or DigitalOcean or Linode or whatever. And they'll grab servers there and you can use Hatchbox to configure all of those and deploy your apps to them. So it will install your node versions, Ruby, set up your database, your firewalls, your security updates, SSH keys, they can do your webhook deployments, all that stuff. It is the far and above the most challenging thing I've ever built, as you would imagine, trying to build something that works. The goal is kind of trying to build something that works like Heroku, but on your own servers that's cheaper. And boy, building that is is pretty tough. There's a lot of of nuances to the point where like you can write a a line of bash to go and like add an SSH key in. But if someone puts a weird character or something in the name of their SSH key, all of a sudden you might like delete too many SSH keys when you're removing one or that will comment out some of the other SSH keys and little nuances like that are, are pretty like, you, you don't expect them when you like start working on something like that. That is the last thing you think you're going to have issues with. And seems like there's never ending lists of little nuances here and there, but it has made deploying my own apps like really easy. And I can deploy say five apps to the same server. And then I only have to pay for the one server, which is nice versus like, Heroku is going to charge you per app and then per database for each of those apps. And, you know, it, it adds up really fast. So I was just looking to provide a way that was like a, you know, a cheap hosting service that you could use that you didn't have to set it all up yourself. 
Uh, especially when a new Ubuntu version comes out and you got to relearn how to do everything because packages have changed and configurations have changed and all that stuff. It, it is a mess. And this will automate it all for you and keep costs as low as possible, which is nice because for me, I have you know, 15, 20 apps that I need to run, but I can't afford to, to do $1,000 a month or more on Heroku for those. And... This, I can do that with, you know, a a fraction of that cost, which is really nice. So it's kind of tailored towards hobbyists, small business, startups, you know, nothing huge or whatever yet. We'll love to to take that challenge on, but, you know, it it is currently, you know, best for those smaller projects, I think. Yeah. So we run CodeFund on Heroku and mainly for the fact that the dev team is two people. Uh, it can be yeah. so terrible. Like yeah, and they don't they don't have much competition, so they don't have a no. whole lot of incentive to make it better. At the same time, yeah. And one thing that happened to us the other day is we have a script that'll basically update our staging database with all of the production data that we have. And Heroku had gone in and upgraded all our Postgres tools to twelve even though our like database was on 11 and you know support wasn't getting back to us i think they finally did but it's just like oh my god like this would never be a problem if we had more control over these tools cuz we couldn't figure out a way to get in there and actually you know put the tools back that caused us problems it made like mm-hmm. it delayed a deploy and then we couldn't deploy more things cuz we were too afraid to test without any data and yeah there've been several other things like we discovered the other day that Heroku was setting an environment variable for us for PG Bouncer. And we didn't know that they were setting it to one instead of like the default, which is like 20, I think. Huh. So basically our database was limited to a single connection and we had, <laughs> we had no idea and it was causing oh, all geez. these problems and we couldn't figure out what was going on. And then we just so happened to find that. And it, yeah, so. Oh boy. It's like you're running SQLite in production. It's funny. Yeah, it's it's yeah, so that, frustrating. It's funny because the lack of control of the server is like a double-edged sword because on the other end of that, you know, Heroku doesn't let you write to the file system or anything. I mean, you can't upload files to your server. Because you can on Hatchbox, there's definitely customers who have like a rogue log file or something that just like, okay, now it's 15 gigs and it takes up your entire disk space. And then they've got, you know, they're messaging me about it. And I'm like, sorry, I can't know that your log file is going to be that large. You know, you can configure it yourself and fix it. But like, that's not really my problem. And unfortunately, it causes their app to go down. But it is a interesting like thing where, I would love to be able to do something like Heroku, but also more flexible. And yet all of the reasons that Heroku does things the way they do, where you don't have control, it makes it for a better experience in the average case. It makes it very painful to go install like the latest FFmpeg or something as a dependency where you got to go learn the whole build pack system and, and either fork somebody else's or build your own or whatever. That's really easy to do on on Hatchbox, but it also requires a little bit of knowledge of Linux to go do that. So it's been an interesting thing where 
you know, if you don't really want to think about servers at all, you can use Hatchbox for that. But at some point, if you've made some, you know, minor error that writes a, a log file that fills up the disk or whatever, then you you have to learn Linux all of a sudden to figure out what went wrong. So it's been a, an interesting experience to go through all of those things and to learn that, to figure out where people are making common mistakes and so on. Little things like, oh my God, this has been a frustration of mine since the beginning. Webpacker loves to hide the failure output when it fails to compile in production. Mm -hmm. And I was like, are you serious? So sometimes it would get killed by the operating system because your server is running an SSD these days. You can't, or you don't want to have them use the disk as swap because if you do that too much, you're going to destroy your SSD and then you're going to have real downtime, like hardware downtime, which is very bad. But the like operating system will actually kill Webpacker when it's compiling and using too much RAM sometimes. Then other times, Webpacker will just die with no output. And at least when it was killed by the operating system, we'd usually see the word killed. So I can like scan the log file and say, hey, it looks like you're out of RAM. And then other times there's zero output. And so what I've done is gone in and the deploy script I've said, look, if we see webpacker.yaml file and it has the compile output to false, let's change it to true and then run your compile. And, and that usually helps. It doesn't catch it every time, but it is certainly like a nice thing for me to be able to go in and do for you because mainly we only deploy Rails. So everything's really nicely tailored to Rails. There's some experimental support of like Node and static sites like a Jekyll site or whatever. But almost every customer is using Rails for the most part. So it's been it's been an interesting thing to like deal with lots of those little nuances that like, yeah, it's a bad configuration default from Webpacker. I guess we can adjust our tool to make your experience as a developer a little bit better just because, you know, really it should be fixed in the gem, but for now we're going to fix it here and, and, you know, we'll run migrations for you by default when you deploy, whereas Heroku will crash your app the first time, you know, you'll get that 500 error and you'll yep. be like, you'll be like, why? And Every time it gets me on when I use Heroku, like every single time, I'm like, dang it, 500 error. Oh, it's probably migrations again. Yeah. So those little niceties we can do. And then it's customizable. So if you don't want to run migrations, you don't have to. But yeah, it has been quite the project, but it's been a heck of a lot of fun. And I'm really excited that Hatchbox is sponsoring the videos for RailsConf 2020 this year, which will be pretty sweet. Yeah, I remember you talking about that. That's going to be cool. The log file thing is interesting. I remember at my last job, we had, it was a microservice architecture and then everything just started going down one by one. (laughs) And the reason was because the log files got too big and it's hard to figure that out at first. And I remember the, because I'd never used, I'd use Heroku like off and on just for little toy apps. But when I joined CodeFun, I was like, where's the log file? I want to find out something that happened yesterday. Where Where is the freaking log file? And Nate's like, oh, well, there is none. And I was like, what the heck? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we will set up 
that any of the log files in the log directory by default are uh, rotated like daily. But, and that was usually my default and that was usually good enough. But then like I deployed Hatchbox with those same rules and Hatchbox uses Action Cable quite a bit. And Action Cable loves to write lots of logs. So there are actually a few times early on that Hatchbox went down because Action Cable wrote so many logs that it filled the disk up in a day. And then I'd reset it and it'd be down tomorrow because it would do the same thing and it'd be like, oh man, it must write a ton of logs. So yeah. I eventually like turned those off and things are way better now. But that's a you know, those are those are those little things that like Heroku has its own log aggregation service, which is really nice. And you know, maybe something we'll add in the future, but because we run on your own servers, you'd have to like run a service, like a log aggregation service on your server or build some sort of shared one that stores everybody's logs. And you know, I would prefer if most of the stuff ran inside your own clusters and it's you know, because we're like a lot of our customers are cost sensitive, it's easier for us to just let it write to log files and then we can adjust. And so there's there's probably little things of like we should just limit the log file size to, you know, five hundred megs or or whatever rather than like rotating it daily or something. Those things will will iron out, but you know, it it's a it's got a lot of different trade offs than than a Heroku and now I can very clearly see why they've made all this de- those decisions that they have done. It's very fun. Yeah. Well, I want to be respectful of your time where I think we've already broached the hour mark. So is there anything else you want to plug or end off with? I don't think so, but you can find uh, pretty much everything I do is on GoRails.com, Hatchbox.io if you want to check that out for deploying your Rails apps. And you can find me on Twitter at EXCID3, which is a long story, but it's an old username that pretty much will never, ever be taken. So that's why I ended up using it. So Yeah, and we will have links to all of that in the show notes. Cool. Well, Thank you guys I, for having me. This is fun. Um, yeah. Thanks for agreeing to do it last minute. Ron couldn't be here, who is normally hosting with Nate and I, and he couldn't do it today. And I was like, hey, Nate, maybe we can see if Chris Chris would be interested in doing it. And I was like, if not, you and I can chat. But yeah, we're both really glad that you can make it. And yeah, thanks. Yeah, anytime. And I'm sure we will talk uh, very soon on Remote Ruby later this week. Yeah, definitely. Definitely go check out Remote Ruby if you haven't. Well, Chris, thank you very much. Have a great day. All right. Talk soon. See ya. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.